Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. A lot of things that are scalable in one way aren't truly scalable in the way we talk about it when we talk about being an entrepreneur and scaling a large business. It is very easy relatively to scale reach and eyeballs and content. It's very easy to scale revenue if you don't care how much it costs you to get that revenue. When you talk about scalability, you really have to talk about sustainable scalability. Uh, And a lot of people, including me, have screwed this up along the way because you sit there and you're like, I don't care what it costs. This business will work at X scale. So let's just get to X scale. And that is true for a very small number of businesses, which are basically Uber and Airbnb and Lyft. And for almost every other business, that's not true. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 42. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with John Brodsky. John Brodsky is Finder.com's country manager here in the U.S., leading the company's growth across its core niche categories of international money transfers, personal loans, credit cards, and shopping comparisons. Previously, he was the senior vice president of digital at Chicken Soup for the Soul, where he was responsible for product changes that helped grow monthly content reach from approximately 300,000 people to 1 billion people. Previous experience also includes time at allmenus.com, which John grew to 250,000 restaurants and nationwide coverage within 18 months, and 1-800-Flowers.com, where he completed deals that generated over $300 million of annual revenue. John, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Naftali. That was quite the bio. We're going to have to unpack that and (laughs) understand how you achieved so many fantastic things. But, you know, sometimes... I dive right into uh, a leader's professional experience and all of that. But I'm just curious, how did you get started? How did you choose your profession? And specifically, how did you move your way up so quickly into the leadership space? Sure. So, you know, I don't think I could say that I actually chose a profession. Uh, when When I was in college, uh, I really had no aspirations for any career. I did do the summer internships. Uh, All of those summer internships were set up by my parents who were like, you need to do something with your life, go interview with these 50 people, and one of them will take pity on you. Uh And that worked in my favor uh, because a few of them did take pity on me. So how did you how did you become so good specifically? You know, I was just reading your bio. We talk about how you're you're growing businesses, you're you're increasing reach, you're increasing the number of restaurants or whatever it might be, depending on the specific area or even in your current work. How did you leverage whatever you learned, or where did you pick up the skills? Maybe I should say to be to be able to scale businesses the way that you've done. Uh, I think you know. I think it's not a straight line. There's a ton of trial and error in there. The things that have worked in my favor are that I'm very, very competitive. So while I'm laid back uh, all the time and I don't actually outwardly appear to be super aggressive and competitive, uh, most people who know me think I'm, I'm by far the most competitive person that they know. And so I really do want to win every single chance I get. 
the other thing that has served me pretty well in growing things is, is that I don't put much stock in opinions and I never have. I've always had uh, large scale issues with authority figures at every point in my life. So when somebody tells me that it works this way because they said so, my reaction to that is, oh, you don't know why it works. That's why you're saying, because I said so. Because if you had a real explanation, you'd be able to actually give me the real explanation and stop me from badgering you over and over and over like you know I'm going to do. So because I have, you know, I have that kind of desire to see why something really works, I spend a lot of time digging into data and I spend a lot of time just stepping back from the data and saying, what does common sense tell me here? But so let's stay with that because I, I'm curious, what, what would be some of the most important questions that you want to be asking yourself when you're trying to determine whether or not something is scalable, whether there's something is viable? Is there anything in particular that you can share for, with our listeners that kind of like top of mind priorities for you? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to do that. So a lot of things that are scalable in one way aren't truly scalable in the way we talk about it when we talk about being an entrepreneur and scaling a large business. It is very easy relatively to scale reach and eyeballs and content. It's very easy to scale revenue if you don't care how much it costs you to get that revenue. When you talk about scalability, you really have to talk about sustainable scalability. Uh, and a lot of people, including me, have screwed this up along the way because you sit there and you're like, I don't care what it costs. This business will work at X scale. So let's just get to X scale. And that is true for a very small number of businesses, which are basically Uber and Airbnb and Lyft. And for almost every other business, that's not true. Mm, interesting. So... You know, the thing that you really have to focus on is who's going to buy this product? Who am I selling it to? What is it that they want that they're not getting elsewhere? And how do I deliver more of that to them than they're getting from anybody else? And that's, it's never a single formula or any single data point that will get you to scalability. It's and hundreds or thousands of them. Got it. So how do, you, how do you answer that last question? Like, How do you determine, first of all, who your buyers are? That might be the easier question. The, maybe the harder question is, how do you determine what exactly they need that the market is not currently providing for them? And then, you're, and then, and then provide that solution. Sure. So in terms of, of figuring out who's going to give you money for a service, you, you simply keep asking people for money for a service until some of them say yes um, more than once. You know, it's, I'm a fairly good salesperson. I can generally get people to say yes once, sometimes twice, even if the data doesn't support them saying yes, even if they're losing money on it. And that's actually been something that's fairly hard, been fairly hard for me to learn because yeah, I have to separate my ability to sell from what actually works for a client. But I know that if somebody's buying for me three, four, five times in a row, whether that's a subscription-based model or whether that's an ad-based model or just a product model, then I'm, I'm doing something right and I, have, and I have a real business. But how do you know that on the front end? In other words, before I invest all this time and money into creating my product or service, I want to know that there's that market because otherwise I could go through this process and then wind up with nobody. So, so what's your method there? Ah, so that's that's really easy. You either see that there's somebody out there doing it already, which is my preferred method. Okay, you know, I would say 99.9% of the time. You know, if you know that somebody else has been able to make this work, then they've already proven this for you. 
then there's a very small group of people who are just hyper committed to a br- introducing a brand new product to the world um, that nobody's ever seen before. And they know in their bones it's going to work. I have never been a part of one of those products where it's worked. Even when I was running All Menus, which was the first nationwide service that listed menus for every restaurant, the basics of that were existed everywhere. Everybody had their own menu book. Every office had a menu book. All I was doing was digitizing this menu book and making it easier to access uh, and making it so that if somebody spilled coffee on the menu book, you didn't lose the Chinese restaurant's number that you love. Mm-hmm. It, I, I don't really believe in trying to set the world on fire with something that is wholly new and that you have to explain to people because that takes 30 to 50 years. I mean, it sounds to me the way, you, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut yeah, you off. That's fine. It that's to fine. Me that you're taking an idea and maybe making minor or incremental changes or improvements that will take an existing product and just make it that much more usable or that much better for for the end user. Is that the basic philosophy? Uh, there are certainly a large portion of it that is incremental changes. I would say that the main thing that I do at the beginning is mash it up with something else. So if I look at what we do here at finder.com, we offer services that help people compare loans and credit products and shopping and all this other stuff. This is something that has existed previously. There are plenty of, of sites out there that have said like, hey, price is dropping now, come here. And those business models tend not to work because you're very reliant on the data feed and having the most up-to-date uh, information about that product's pricing. And you are assuming that that product is the only thing that people want to buy. At Finder, we spend a lot more time doing heavy reviews of products so that you can make your own decision on it. And that time, that investment, which is what I do personally when I buy stuff, I don't know if that's what you do too when you buy stuff, but I I don't even buy shoes without like doing a lot of reviews on it. And I go through tons of running shoes every single month or every single year, Uh, not month, that would be way too much. We provide people with that kind of information. And what we're really doing there is mashing up the research they would do themselves with high quality content. Um, And we do it in a way that many other people don't. And there's many, many, many incremental changes that we've made along the way to make this more successful because the basic idea is pretty hard. And everybody who starts in this type of space just says, Hey, this is what I want to do for me. Uh, I only want to review the best CrossFit equipment. Um, (laughs) Let me see how, how long it's going to take me to get a free rig and a bunch of free dumbbells. We're doing it for a much wider group of people, of course. Mm -hmm. And so where's the revenue for you? In other words, are these your sales or you're just, it's a commission based off of uh, the links within your website? How is that working? Uh, We're generally a commission-based service. So when you click on a link, uh, we get paid, which are what the disclosures say throughout our site. Sure. Okay. So let let me ask you this, because there's no question that if you're going to grow your business, you have to be setting some goals and have a real sense of what you want to accomplish. Take us through your goal setting process a little bit. What do you use? What's your favorite technique? And how do you stay on track? Uh, My favorite technique is um, asking everybody what they think the goals should be. So I'm always very collaborative on that. I learn from experience that if I set the goals myself, the goals will be astronomically high. So I do not do that. I ask everyone who works with me and every company what they think the goals should be, uh, which I always find to be far too low. And then I just keep pushing them up, pushing them up, pushing them up 
until somebody comes back to me with a real data-based reason why we can't go any further, why this has stopped making any sense and it's disconnected from reality. And we pull it back to the point where it's the kind of the highest point where we think it's connected to reality. And then how do you, how do you stay on that? So to make sure that you're, you're meeting your goals. Oh, we just track everything every day, every, every single day. You know, I set all my goals that I set are broad based revenue goals in a business. I tend to shy away from all of the intermediate goals. So I know a ton of people love smart goals um, because they are, they give you a lot of very intermediate steps that you can do to get from here to there. Uh, If I was starting a business, there are, I can see why I may want to employ those. But in general, what I want to do is hit a revenue number because I want to be able to pay everybody here who works at this company and works really hard more money. Um, including me. What's your time frame typically then on your goals? Like how a far? Year. Are you a year. Okay. Yeah. Three months. Some of them are three month goals. Some of them are a year. Uh, but we just look at what we need to do to get revenue from here to there. And then every, everything that contributes to that is not a goal. It's just part of the process. Uh, I believe much, much more in process than looking at a yardstick. Just saying, okay, we did this. It made this effect. Um, and it was either positive or negative, and we're going to keep it or we're going to get away from it. Interesting. I'm doing that all day, every day. The there are people on the team who really believe very heavily in visualizing their goals, and and have five and ten and fifteen year plans for themselves. Wow. Um, I've tried that. I can't stick to it. I I have nowhere near the attention span to do something that's that far out and to be that driven. So when you're when you're meeting with your team. How much of a front burner place, so to speak, do your goals play? In other words, how much are you keeping everyone focused on them as opposed to knowing what they are, but we're going to focus more on our daily, weekly, monthly activities? So the only metric we track are the revenue-based metrics. So every single day, everybody's seeing this in their inbox and in Slack. Here's where we are in revenue. Uh, and here is where we are on these major contributors to revenue that you have day-to-day influence over. So we keep those front and center. However, I wouldn't say that we spend a lot of time talking about whether or not we've hit those revenue goals. What we talk about is the process and what we've learned this week, what we can fix uh, and improve, what worked really, really well, and we should try and export it to other parts of the team. But the process is far more important than whether or not we hit any individual revenue goal. We all know that going back to how we set the goals in the first place, that we picked the thing that was on the edge of what's possible. Mm -hmm. We know that everything has to go right in that entire year or something has to just blow us out of the water amazingly well for us to hit our revenue goals. So when we are at 95% of our revenue goals, which is basically where we are right now, we don't really feel bad that we're, you know, 5% away. We think, oh, wow, you know, we're doing really, really well compared to where we thought the edge was. Um, And we take that as a data point for next year. Great. Yeah. It reminds me, you may be familiar with OKRs, objectives and key results. And so one of the pieces there that is discussed is to have your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal, try to stay within reason, but but not really. In other words, to kind of push yourselves uh, in a significant way with the intent that if you wind up at about 0.7 or, or 0.75 out of you know in a zero to one scale, that 
that you're, you've done very well. Because if you hit the one, if you've maxed out, then maybe your goals just weren't robust enough to begin with. So it sounds like you you try to push yourself and you just outperform and that happens and that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure you'll take that in moving forward. Yeah, that's true. And we do actually use an OKR framework here to help people figure out the steps that they think are there. We just throw out all the KRs about a month into each quarter uh, in general because we, you know, what people thought was going to work often doesn't, or they got to them really quickly and then they need more KRs. So they make new ones. When you say throw out, you mean replace them, right? Yes. Got it. Okay. Fantastic. So I'm going to make an assumption here. And if it's a false assumption, you could let me know. But my guess is that your work requires lots of delegation, you know, empowering your team to do their work and to really allow you to do the leadership pieces that you need to be focused on. So obviously, if that's wrong, you can let me know. But since I, I'm hyper-focused on delegation, I have an online course I'm developing now. I'd love to get your tips. What do you find to be the best way or what are some tips you could share that help leaders delegate work more effectively to others? Sure. Uh, my technique there is a very heavy investment upfront in training where I am doing that training. If it's somebody who's my direct, direct report, If it's one of my direct reports, they're doing the training for their team and so on. Uh, We have the training work from one level above right down rather than having a separate trainer come in and do most of the work. We will send people out to to a class or something else if it's needed. Uh, If they don't have the requisite Excel skills or something else, we don't don't sit here and teach that. Um, But our assumption is that the person who did the job previously is the best one to teach it. Uh, we grew from when I started here, there are 12 of us, now there's 50. So we've all done a lot of different jobs at this point, including me. Uh, and I have no problem teaching our accounting person how to use our accounting system, how to teach our heads of sales, how to, how to manage the process, uh, and let them then train other salespeople, train our product people, and so forth. The, um, and then I, I just let them fail. You know, after, after you've gone through the training, after you've done a ton of live, uh, live testing with them, where you get to see them do one thing or another, and you're reasonably confident that they have you know, their head on straight about this, um, my goal is to let them fail often and fast, because that's the only way you learn. You don't, you don't learn when you win. You learn when you screw up over and over and over, and you're like, all right, here are 300 more things I'm going to remember never to do again. And then once they're at that point, uh, we do weekly one-on-ones with my direct reports. I often do weekly coaching sessions for some of them as well to help them manage their team better, uh, especially with ones who have larger teams. And then we we start trying to peel back the things that they say are my 300 don'ts and say like, okay, maybe you just didn't do that one as well as you could have the first time around. So let them try to refail in that one and see if and see if their assumptions were correct but uh you know, none of us can build a company all by ourselves it's that's one of those big fallacies of entrepreneurs you have to delegate everything all the time especially if you're in the leadership role especially if your job is to be the face of the company and set the strategic vision i don't have the time or the energy to do all of our sales work and all of our product work and all of our writing and everything else and and quite frankly i hired people who are way better at it than me in general that's what we want to do yeah it's so interesting because the first two things that you said there john resonated with me a ton the idea of you know giving them tons of you know lots of training up front makes a lot of sense 
the the fact that you had the ability to either have one person so to speak pass the baton to the next one and train that person how to do it you know the one who had done it previously or just the fact that so many of you have done various tasks over the years in a smaller company that's grown that you all have that experience and you can kind of train one another all of that was really really great but the thing that i think that surprised me a little bit only to the extent that you took it was the notion of letting them fail and fail frequently and fail often. And so my question is, I sort of suspect I know the answer based on everything else you said, but I want to hear it from you directly. So when do you know that somebody is failing, but eventually will get it? And when do you suspect that the person just doesn't have the tools or doesn't have the capacity? It's just never going to happen. It's, you know, something that is the hardest thing for us to figure out. That is where you know, we will often invest way too much time in an employee who is just not going to pay off. And the way we generally figure it out is we get third parties inside the company to, to do a independent type of evaluation. We'll, we'll ask somebody else, what do you think of this? You know, this is not working the way I want it to. Do you think I'm not communicating properly? You know, work on our communication a lot and make sure that we communicate different ways to different people because all of us take in information differently. But uh, at the end of the day, like if somebody hasn't, our our rule of thumb is if somebody just hasn't gotten it and they've been doing the same thing wrong 10 times in a row, shame on us for letting that person continue to fail in that way. Let's either find them a different role in the company if we think that they are really talented, but just were a bad fit for that role because we are expanding constantly. But more often than not, we just say, okay, we made a mistake on this person. Let's move on. Um, the nicest thing we can do to that for that person is let them stop feeling the daily stress of being a total failure. Um, on our exit interviews, one of the most common things that we hear when we are terminating people is, this is the hardest thing I've ever failed at over and over and over. You know, I do not understand how you guys do this. And when we hear that, we know we made the right decision, both for that person in terms of letting them move on and find a better place for the, themselves, as well as for us as a company. I mean, we are we move incredibly quickly. You know, we we get rid of all things that are ego driven. We have a, um, a very strict kind of truth-telling policy here that we call being straight up, where you know, if you're not honest with yourself, you're not honest with others around you, you're just not going to last here because none of us have time to uncover the things that you are embarrassed about. Got it. So we're going to we're going to pivot now, and this has been fantastic. Lots of great nuggets here. This segment, the answers are short and to the point, and uh, kind of like a few words or one liners or whatnot. And we now introduce our rapid fire. So the first one I have for you, John, is if you could plaster a message on a massive billboard, what would it say? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> A little waving hand possibly as well. Something you would do differently as your 25-year-old self. Oh my gosh. I wish my 25-year-old self, well, I wish my 23-year-old self had kept the job because he would have been a millionaire by the time he was 25. Interesting. Okay. Next one. What are you not very good at? I'm terrible at details. And lastly, room, desk, and car, which do you clean first? Oh, man. None of them. 
<laughs> I suppose desk. I suppose desk. What's that? I suppose desk. Okay, fair enough. So now it's an opportunity for you, John, to give us a little bit more about yourself. Where can folks find you and your work, engage with you, and learn from you? Sure. You can find me. My uh, my email is john.brodsky at finder.com. That's J-O-N. And you can always find me through finder.com. Uh, you can also get me on Twitter at John Surfs or on Quora under my name, Jonathan Brodsky. Those are, those are the places people generally get to me. Wonderful. So before we let you go, John, you've given us a lot, but I've got one final request, and that is a departing, so to speak, life lesson that you could share with us that'll leave our conversation on a high. Sure. I I would say that the biggest thing I've had to learn over and over is just stick with it. When it gets really, really hard, if you don't have a reason to quit that is intrinsic to the business, don't quit. Just keep pushing forward. You'll be happy you did. Fantastic. Well, it's really been a pleasure. We've only gotten to know each other just a little bit now, but I've enjoyed it very much. And I'm certainly looking forward to uh, communicating with you further and getting to know you better over time. Sounds good. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to pick up your copy of Becoming the New Boss on Amazon or at becomingthenewboss.com. If you've already got your copy, be sure to rate the book and leave a comment.